You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a compilation of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, the festivals and their meaning. This is the twelfth lecture in the series. It is the fourth lecture in the Easter section, entitled Spirit Triumphant, given in Dornach on the 27th of March, 1921. There is a significant contrast between the Christmas thought and the Easter thought. Understanding of the contrast and also of the living relationship between them will lead to an experience which in a certain way embraces the whole riddle of human existence. The Christmas thought points to birth. Through birth, the eternal being of man comes into the world from which his material bodily constitution is derived. The Christmas thought, therefore, links us with the supersensible. Together with all its other associations, it points us to the one pole of our existence, where, as physical material beings, we are connected with the spiritual and supersensible. The birth of a human being can therefore never be fully explained by a science based entirely upon observation of material existence. The thought underlying the Easter festival lies at the other pole of human experience. In the course of the development of Western civilization, this Easter thought increasingly assumed a form which paved the way for Western materialistic thinking. The Easter thought can be grasped in a more abstract way, to begin with, when it is realized that the immortal, spiritual, supersensible essence of the human being that cannot in the real sense be born, descends from spiritual worlds and is clothed in the human physical body. From the very beginning of physical existence, the working of the spirit within the physical body actually leads this physical body toward death. The thought of death is therefore implicit in that of birth. On other occasions I have said that we must see what it what is at work in the human head and nervous system as nothing other than a continual death process, counteracted only by the life forces in the rest of the organism. The moment that the forces of death, which are all the time present in the head and enable us to think, get the upper hand over our transient mortal nature, then actual death occurs. The thought of death is, therefore, really only another side of that of birth and cannot be an essential part of the Easter thought. At the time when the early Pauline forms of Christianity still drew upon Eastern wisdom, it was not to the death but to the resurrection of Christ Jesus that people's minds were directed. For instance, by those powerful words of Paul, Quote, if Christ be not risen, then your faith is dead. Close quote. The resurrection, the triumphant victory over death, the overcoming of death, this was the essence of the Easter thought 
in the early form of Christianity that was still influenced by Eastern wisdom. On the other hand, there are pictures in which Christ Jesus is portrayed as the Good Shepherd, watching over the eternal interests of man as he sleeps through his mortal existence. In early Christianity, man is everywhere directed to the words of the Gospel. Quote, he whom ye seek is not here. Close quote. Expanding this, we might say, quote, seek him in spiritual worlds, not in the physical material world. For if you seek him in the physical material world, you can but be told that he whom you seek is no longer here. Close quote. The all-embracing wisdom, which in the first centuries of Christendom still endeavored to grasp and penetrate the mystery of Golgotha and all that pertained to it, was gradually submerged by the materialism of the West. In those early centuries, materialism had not reached anything like its full power, but was only slowly being prepared. The first feeble and hardly noticeable materialistic tendencies were transformed only much later into the materialism which took stronger and stronger hold of Western civilization. The original Eastern concept of religion came to be bound up with the concept of the state that was developing in the West. In the 4th century AD, Christianity became a state religion. In other words, there crept into Christianity something that is not religion at all. Julian the Apostate, who was no Christian, but for all that a deeply religious man, could not accept what Christianity had become under Constantine. And so we see how in the fusion of Christianity with the declining culture of Rome, Western materialism begins to make its appearance. Very slightly at first, but nevertheless perceptibly. And under this influence there appeared a picture of Christ Jesus, which at the beginning simply was not there, was not part of Christianity in its original form. The picture of Christ Jesus as the Crucified One, the Man of Sorrows, brought to His death by the indescribable suffering that was His lot. This made a breach in the whole outlook of the Christian world. For the picture which from then onward persisted through the centuries the picture of Christ agonizing on the cross is the Christ who could no longer be comprehended in his spiritual nature, but in his bodily nature only. And the greater the emphasis that was laid on the signs of suffering in the human body, the more perfect the skill with which art succeeded at different periods in portraying these sufferings. The more firmly were the seeds of materialism planted in Christian feeling. The crucifix is the expression of the transition to Christian materialism. This in no way gainsays the profundity and significance with which art portrayed the sufferings of the Redeemer. Nevertheless, it is a fact that through this picture of the Redeemer suffering and dying on the cross, human beings lost sight of a truly spiritual conception of Christianity. Then there crept into this conception of the man of sorrows, that of Christ, as judge of the world, who must be regarded as merely another expression of Yahweh or Jehovah, 
the figure portrayed so magnificently in the Sistine Chapel at Rome as the dispenser of judgment. An attitude of mind arose which could banish the image of the victorious spirit of the Redeemer rising triumphant over death and leave only that of the grave. This was the same attitude of mind which in the year 869 at the Eighth Ecumenical Council in Constantinople declared belief in the spirit to be heretical, decreed that man is to be conceived as consisting only of body and soul, the soul merely having certain spiritual qualities. Just as we see the spiritual reality expelled by the crucifix, just as the portrayals of the physical give expression to the pain-racked soul without the spirit triumphant, by whom mankind is guarded and sustained, so do we see the spirit struck away from the being of man by the decree of an ecumenical council. The Good Friday festival and the Easter festival of resurrection were largely combined. Even in days when human beings were not yet so arid, so empty of understanding, Good Friday became a festival in which the Easter thought was transformed in an altogether egotistic direction. Wallowing in pain, steeping the soul voluptuously in pain, feeling ecstasy in pain, this for centuries was associated with the Good Friday thought, which in truth should merely have formed the background for the Easter thought. But people became less and less capable of grasping the Easter thought in its true form. The same humanity which had accepted the principle that man consists of body and soul only needed to sustain its emotional life through the picture of the dying Redeemer. This image was the reflection of its own physical suffering and served as a contrasting background against which people could experience, at least outwardly, what they had once experienced directly, that the living spirit must always be victorious over everything that can befall the physical body. People needed first the picture of the martyr's death in order to experience by way of contrast the true Easter thought. The way in which vision and experience of the Spirit gradually faded from Western culture must profoundly affect our feelings. We shall certainly look with wonder, but at the same time with a certain feeling of tragedy, at all the artistic portrayals of the man of sorrows on the cross. Haphazard thoughts and casual feelings about what is needed in our time are not sufficient. We must perceive with the greatest clarity the decline that has taken place in Western culture in respect of the understanding of the spiritual. We need to recognize today that even the greatest achievements in a certain domain are something that humanity must now surmount. The whole of our Western culture needs the Easter thought, needs, in other words, to be lifted to the Spirit. The holy mystery of birth, the Christmas mystery once revealed in such glory, gradually deteriorated in the course of Western civilization into those sentimentalities which reveled in hymns and songs about the baby Jesus and were in truth merely a corresponding pole to increasing materialism. People wallowed 
in sentimentalities over the little child. Banal hymns about the baby Jesus gradually became the vogue, obscuring the stupendous Christmas mystery of the coming of a super-earthly spirit. It is characteristic of a Christianity developing more and more in the direction of intellectualism that certain of its representatives today even go as far as to say that the Gospels are concerned primarily with the Father, not with the Son. True, the resurrection thought has remained, but only through its association with the contrasting thought of death. A characteristic symptom in the development of modern civilization is that the Good Friday thought has come increasingly to the fore, while the resurrection thought, the true Easter thought, has fallen more and more into the background. We live in an age in which we must experience the resurrection of our own being in the Spirit. We must therefore learn to understand the importance of the Easter thought for us in all its depths. But this entails the realization that the picture of the man of sorrows on the one side and that of the lawgiver and judge of the world on the other are both symptomatic of the march of Western civilization into materialism. We need the Christ as a supersensible, super-earthly being who entered nevertheless into the stream of earthly evolution. This thought is the sun, S-U-N, to all our human thinking, and we must fight our way through to it. Just as we must realize that the Christmas thought of birth has become something that has dragged the greatest of mysteries into the realm of trivial sentimentality, so too we must realize how necessary it is to emphasize that in the Easter thought there enters into human evolution something forever inexplicable on an earthly level, but comprehensible to spiritual knowledge, to spiritual insight. Spiritual understanding finds in the resurrection thought the first great source of strength, knowing that the spiritual and eternal, also within man, remains unaffected by the physical and bodily. It recognizes in the words of St. Paul, quote, If Christ be not risen, then your faith is dead, close quote, a confirmation, which in the modern age must be reached in a different, more conscious way, of the real nature of the being of Christ. This is what the Easter thought must call up in us today. Easter must become an inner festival, a festival in which we celebrate in ourselves the victory of the Spirit over the body. As history should not be disregarded, we shall not ignore the figure of the pain-stricken Jesus, the man of sorrows on the cross, But above the cross, we must behold the victor who remains unaffected by birth as well as by death, and who alone can lead our vision up to the eternal pastures of life in the Spirit. Only so shall we draw near again to the true being of Christ. Western humanity has drawn Christ down to its own level, drawn Him down as the helpless child and as one associated preeminently with suffering and death. I have often pointed out that the words, quote, death is evil, close quote, fell from the Buddha's lips, 
as long before the mystery of Golgotha as after the mystery of Golgotha there appeared the crucifix, the figure of the crucified one. And that then people looked upon death and felt it to be no evil, but something that had no real existence. But this feeling, which was an echo from an Eastern wisdom even more profound than Buddhism, was gradually obscured by one which clung to the picture of the pain-racked sufferer. We must grasp with the whole range of our feelings, not with thoughts alone, for their range is often too limited, what the fate of man's conception of the mystery of Golgotha has been in the course of the centuries. A true understanding of the mystery of Golgotha is what we must again acquire. And let us remember that even in the days of Hebraic antiquity, Jehovah was not conceived as the judge of the world in any juristic sense. In the book of Job, the greatest dramatic presentation of religious experience in Hebraic antiquity, the sufferings of Job cannot be seen in terms of any outward execution of justice. Job is the suffering man, the man who regards what outer circumstances inflict upon him as his destiny. Only gradually does the juristic concept of retribution, punishment, become part of the world order. Michelangelo's picture over the altar of the Sistine Chapel represents in one aspect a kind of revival of the Jehovah Principle. We, however, need the Christ for whom we can seek in our inmost being, because when we truly seek Him, He at once appears. We need the Christ who enters our will, warming, kindling, strengthening it for deeds demanded of us for the sake of human evolution. We need not the suffering Christ, but the Christ who hovers above the cross, looking down upon what has ended there, which is no longer a living reality. We need the strong consciousness of the eternity of the Spirit, and this consciousness will not be attained if we give ourselves up to the picture of the crucifix alone. And when we see how the crucifix has gradually come to focus upon suffering and pain, we shall realize what power this direction of human feeling has acquired. Mankind's gaze has been diverted from the spiritual to the earthly and physical. This aspect, it is true, has often been magnificently portrayed. But to those like Goethe, who feel the need for our civilization again to reach the spirit, it is something which, in a way, they cannot wholly accept. Goethe has made it abundantly clear that the figure of the crucified Redeemer does not express what he feels to be the essence of Christianity, which is the lifting of man to the spirit. The Good Friday mood, as well as the Easter mood, needs to be transformed. The Good Friday mood must be one that finds in the contemplation of the dying Jesus only the other side of birth. Not to recognize death as implicit in the fact of being born is to lose sight of the full reality. If we are able to feel that the mood of death associated with Good Friday is merely the other aspect of the entrance of the child into the world at birth, we can make the right preparation for the mood of Easter, which can, in truth, consist only in the knowledge, quote, into whatever mortal frame I have been born, 
my real being is both unborn and deathless. Close quote. In our own eternal being, we must unite with the Christ, who came into the world and cannot die, who, when he beholds the man of sorrows on the cross, is looking down upon something other than himself. We must feel what has actually happened as a result of the gradual loss of understanding for the Spirit since the end of the first Christian century in Western civilization. When a sufficiently large number of people realize that the Spirit must be resurrected in modern civilization, the world Easter thought will come into being. This will express itself outwardly in the fact that man will not be satisfied with investigating the laws of nature only, or the laws of history, which are akin to those of nature, but will yearn for understanding of his own will, for knowledge of his own inner freedom, and of the real nature of the will which bears him through and beyond the gate of death, but which in its true nature can only be seen spiritually. How are human beings to acquire the power to grasp the Pentecost thought, the outpouring of the Spirit, since this thought has been dogmatically declared by the Eighth Ecumenical Council at Constantinople to be an empty phrase? How can the power to grasp this Pentecost thought be acquired if we are incapable of apprehending the true Easter thought, the resurrection of the Spirit? The picture of the dying, pain-racked Redeemer must not confound us. We must learn that pain is a condition of our involvement with material existence. The knowledge of this was a fundamental principle of the ancient wisdom, which still sprang from instinctive depths of human understanding. We must acquire this knowledge again, but now through conscious cognition. It was a fundamental principle of the ancient wisdom that pain and suffering originate from man's union with matter. It would be foolishness to believe that because Christ passed through death as a divine spiritual being, he did not suffer pain. To declare that the pain associated with the mystery of Golgotha was a mere semblance of pain would be to voice an unreality. This pain must be conceived as real in the deepest sense, Yet we must also see beyond it. We must gain something from what stands before us when, in surveying the whole sweep of the evolution of humanity, we contemplate the mystery of Golgotha. When pupils in the ancient schools of initiation had been carefully prepared, had undergone all preliminary exercises for attaining knowledge and vision, had also seen dramatic presentations of such knowledge, they were finally shown the image of the most free being. They were led before the figure of the Christos, the man suffering within the physical body, in the purple robe and wearing the crown of thorns. The sight of this Christos was meant to kindle in the soul the power that makes the human being truly human. And the drops of blood which the aspirant for initiation beheld at vital points on the ancient Christos figure were intended to be a stimulus for overcoming human weaknesses and for raising the triumphant spirit from within. The sight of pain was meant to invoke the resurrection of the spiritual nature. This figure represented something 
of deep significance to the pupil, something which can be conveyed in the following simple words, quote, For your happiness you may think many things in life, but if you have gained knowledge and insight into the spiritual connections of existence, you must thank your suffering, your pain. You owe your knowledge to the fact that you did not allow yourself to be mastered by suffering and pain, but were strong enough to rise above them. Close quote. And so in the ancient mysteries, the figure of the suffering Christos was in turn replaced by the figure of the Christ, triumphant, who looks down upon the suffering Christos as upon that which has been overcome. We must rediscover the triumphant spiritual Christ before and within our soul, particularly in the will. That must be our ideal at this present time, especially in regard to what we wish to do for the future well-being of mankind. But the true Easter thought will never be within our reach if we cannot realize that whenever we speak of Christ we must look beyond the earthly into the cosmic. Modern thinking has made the cosmos into a corpse. Today we gaze at the stars and calculate their movements. In other words, we make calculations about the corpse of the universe, never perceiving that in the stars there is life and that the will of the cosmic spirit prevails in their courses. Christ descended to humanity in order to unite our souls with this cosmic spirit. And only those proclaim the gospel of Christ truly who affirm that what the Son reveals to the physical senses is the outer expression of the spirit of our universe, of its resurrecting spirit. We must develop a living understanding for the connection between the reflection of the world spirit in the moon and its embodiment in the sun. We must develop a living understanding for how the time of the Easter festival has been determined by the relationship prevailing between the sun and the moon in spring. We must unite ourselves with the impulse which the Easter festival brought into earthly evolution from the cosmos itself. We must come to realize that it was the ever-watchful guardian spirits of the cosmos who through the sun and moon, those hands of the great clock of the universe, illumined the hugely significant moment in human and world evolution at which the resurrection takes place. We must learn from the spiritual world to feel within ourselves the movements of sun and moon, just as we learn to regulate our earthly affairs according to the hands of a clock. The physical and earthly must be linked to the superphysical and the super-earthly. The Easter thought can be interpreted only in the light of super-earthly realities, for the mystery of Golgotha in its aspect as the resurrection mystery must be distinguished from ordinary human happenings. Human affairs take their course on the earth in an altogether different way. The cosmic forces which the earth receives pour from it into human will forces, into the human metabolic system. But, since the mystery of Golgotha took place, a new influx of will streamed into earthly happenings. There took place on earth a cosmic event for which the earth is merely the stage. 
thereby man was again united with the cosmos. That is what must be understood. For only so can the Easter thought be grasped in all its magnitude. Therefore it is not the picture of the crucifix alone that must stand before us, however grandly and sublimely portrayed by art. Quote, he whom ye seek is not here, close quote, is the thought that must arise. Above the cross there must appear to you the one who is here now, who in the Spirit and for the Spirit calls you to a spirit awakening. This is the true Easter thought that must find its way into the evolution of mankind. It is to this that the human heart and mind must be lifted. Our age demands of us that we shall not only admire things of the past, not only deepen our understanding of what has been created, but that we shall become creators of the new. And even if it be the cross itself, in all the beauty with which artists have endowed it, we may not rest content with that picture. We must hear the words of the angels, who when we seek in death and suffering, exclaim to us, quote, He whom ye seek is no longer here. Close quote. We have to seek the one who is here, by turning an Easter time to the Spirit, which can be given to us only in the image of the resurrection. Then we shall be able, in the right way, to pass from the Good Friday mood of suffering to the spiritual mood of Easter day. In this Easter mood we shall also be able to find the strength with which our will must be imbued if the forces of decline are to be countered by those which lead humanity upward. We need the forces that can bring about this ascent. And the moment we truly understand the Easter thought of resurrection, it will bring us warmth and illumination and kindle within us the forces needed for the future evolution of mankind. The end of Lecture 12